Hello and welcome to episode 53 of A Positive Podcast. Thanks for being here. If you would like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one or celebrate an upcoming special occasion or just because you appreciate what we are doing here on A Positive Podcast, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com or you can email me at riesel at jewishpeabody.com. In addition, if you are curious to hear more about positive-based life coaching, what it is, and to see if it's a fit for you, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com, to set up your free consultation today. Okay, all of you listening, I just have a quick favor to ask all of you. If you can take a moment and leave a rating and a review on our podcast, it would mean so much to us. It's so appreciated. It helps other people be able to find the podcast easier. It only takes a few minutes, a few seconds actually, and it is very effective. So please go ahead, leave a comment. Thank you. In today's episode, I sit down with Lee Yofi, and Lee is a certified suicide prevention educator and crisis management specialist. She is the founder and serves as the director of The Long Short Road, a nonprofit that promotes resilience through psychoeducation and community support. And in this powerful episode, Lee and I sit down and we take this deep dive into mental health challenges and the important role that parents play in all of this. And with empathy and with her own personal experiences, we talk about an important aspects. We talk about important ways that we can help ourselves and our loved ones really kind of build our own self-resilience. Drawing from her own experiences, Lee shares practical insights and strategies and how to be a source of support and strength for our children in times of crisis and for ourselves. And I think you're going to find this conversation to be interesting and informative. I know that I learned a few things or two, and I'm sure you will as well. So thank you so much for listening. Sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. Hello, Lee. It is such a pleasure to have you here on a positive podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Lee. Yaffe. Um, it's been a long time in coming, so I'm glad that we made the time to make this happen. And um, I really want to talk about a lot of different things, but specifically, I want to talk about mental health awareness, um, education, and how we can help our loved ones. To me, it seems that people are struggling a lot with um, anxiety yes, and dealing with a loved one or that's struggling with it, or they, they themselves. It seems like I, I, everyone today has someone in their life that they know that is dealing with anxiety. And it it actually seems to be going, getting younger and younger, the ages of people that are children that are struggling with anxiety as well. So I want to talk a little bit about that, but I want to first start off with introducing you. Sure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? What is it you do? Okay. So I, um, now for the last four years have been the director of a nonprofit. Previously, we were called the Gelt Charitable Foundation. Now it's the Long Short Road. Um, And I founded this nonprofit because I was seeking answers for myself, for ways that I could improve my mental health and the mental health of people that I loved. And this now seems like a very natural... you know, progression of things. But if you would have told me seven years ago when I got started in this, that this is what I would be doing, I 
I think I would be a little bit shocked. Um, but our, our main um, component of the nonprofit is mental wellness and suicide prevention education. I believe that a big part of changing the conversation around mental health and mental health is a spectrum, right? It, ranging from normal to say extreme, but it's changing the conversation around these very prevalent issues and topics can only happen when we have a paradigm shift and a perspective shift on how we treat people with mental health issues. Um, and so for me, that's been a big part of this is like helping create new conversations around mental health and around suicide awareness so that we feel less afraid to talk about these topics. Um, and for me, this started seven years ago when I was the creative director at CTN International. Um, I was the shluchim, I was the coach for the shluchim. So every new shliach that would sign up for CTN, they would have one year of, of unlimited coaching with me to help them get off the ground. And more and more shluchim were calling me because teens in their community were struggling with mental health issues. We, as a global community of suicide, of uh, excuse me, of CTN chapters, we lost 10 teens to suicide. And so it, it kind of, it shined a very big flashlight to me on like issues that were, were happening that I was being asked for help to be the helper of that I didn't necessarily know how to, like I didn't know how to help when, when people would come to me. And so I made it my, my business, I made it my job to figure out how to help them. And so five years ago, I became certified as a crisis intervention trainer and a suicide prevention educator. And then since then have like branched my work out into um, more along the spectrum of mental health, not only in extreme crisis, because I don't think that we need to, we should not wait until people are in extreme crisis to pay attention to mental health. It, it should be happening much, much earlier than that. Absolutely. So, yeah. More proactive <clears throat> care around that. It would be very helpful. Yeah. So, so you're helping people um, at this point. Tell me right now, catch us up. What are you doing currently day to day? So within the long, short road, I would say 40% of the work that we do is education-based. So um, I will go out into communities, schools, synagogues, fire stations, parenting groups, after-school clubs, you name it, and give presentations on holistic mental wellness, on emotional regulation, on suicide awareness. Um, and then the other 60% is consulting and referring. Um, a lot of people who attend our classes or who have heard me speak will reach out because they have a loved one who's in crisis and they just don't, they're like really, unfor unfortunately and unfortunately, until you are faced with a crisis in your life, you never think that you're gonna have to know how to navigate these kinds of systems. Um, and so this is something that I've learned how to do just, you know, by virtue of lived experience, I have a lot of experience with working with inpatient, outpatient, you know, hospitals, all kinds of different things. So I would say that the majority of the work that I do in a week now is just speaking individually one-on-one -on -one to families or to individuals in crisis and helping them just lay the groundwork for like best steps and best practices for, for the very long road that they're going to be on to, you know, to get the support they need. And I'm saying very long road, not because I want to like make it seem like it's a big daunting journey, but I think anyone who prioritizes their mental health knows that it's not a one-time thing. It's yeah. not if you, you know, you will be on this journey for the rest of your life. It doesn't mean that you're going to be struggling in the journey for the rest of your life, but you will be on it forever. That is very true. 
and a lot of people are looking for quick fixes. A lot of people are like, well, my child struggles with anxiety. Can you, can you help, help me? Like, help me make this go away. Right. And right. That's not how it works. It's like, okay, your child is going to be dealing with this for the rest of their life. The good news is there's a lot of things you can do to help them manage their anxiety and help them live right. a full productive, good life with anxiety. Right. And also living with anxiety doesn't only mean that they're going to be forever living in this state of anxiety, right? Like I personally have struggled with anxiety and depression for many, many years for, from, from my teenage years. And I'm in my thirties now, but I know that not always am I in the exact same place. And I think it's important to give people that hope of like, this is not something that's necessarily going to have the same hold on you forever as it does right now. You might still feel anxious sometimes. You might get into moments where you have deep periods of sadness. And also, the more you learn, the more tools you have, the more you're able to integrate the tools, the easier it becomes to thrive simultaneously to living with these issues, right? That's a very true point. And it's a, it's a very hopeful message as well, because you know people listening should know that you can live a very full productive life, even if you struggle with anxiety, depression, all of these different, you know, because I think people look at that and say, oh, that's just like a death sentence for my child that they're or my teenager. Oh, and yeah, it's 100%. not true. It's, not. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's not no. easy to parent and be there for your child um, or yourself if you're struggling with it, but know that there's a lot of hope. And that's a really important point to keep um, in mind. I want to ask you a question. If you can please talk about for a moment, the difference between um, suicide ideation being suicidal and self-harm, because I hear those terms thrown out around a lot. And um, they're really not inter, they're not, they're not as interconnected or mean the same thing as people think they do. Right. And, and, you know, you know, you'll hear about somebody whose child is cutting. You'll hear about somebody who says, you know, their child ha is having suicide ideation. And then, you know, that there's people that are suicidal. So if you could right. break that so down for us, difference. that would be really helpful. What is the difference and, and give us some clarity on that. So suicidal ideation is the experience of passively thinking about suicide. So it's not to say that it could not become active, but it's, well, okay, let me backtrack a little bit and just kind of break this down in this way. Suicidal ideation and then potentially the, the buildup to suicidal behavior and being suicidal stems from a place of feeling a combination of hopelessness with the challenge that they're facing. So everybody goes through challenging situations. Everybody goes through, you know, levels of stress and who's to say whose life is more stressful, right? Like, it's not fair to say like, oh, this person's going through it worse than the other person. We don't know. But for many people, especially young people who are feeling a sense of challenge, stress, overwhelm, anxiety, lack of hope, that's the key word here, this lack of hope and this hopelessness, those two factors combined lead to suicidal ideation. Now, suicidal ideation is thinking about suicide, thinking about what would happen if I explored this option, not so much as thinking like, this is something I need to do right now, right? So it, would this be an example? I know, I'm sorry to interrupt. Would sure. this be an example if you're driving along a bridge and you see the sides of it and you're like, well, what if the car just went off the side? And all this, this would right. kind of, this pain would be over. Okay. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not planning it, but it's just, it's just, 
Right. It's just, it just comes yeah. in your, it pops into your head. Exactly. And also the thing that I want to normalize here is that every single human being on the world in the world who is living and breathing will think about death in passive ways, about their own death in passive right. ways. Right. That's not necessarily an immediate emergency, though, if suicidal ideation is becoming a regular part of a person's life where it's constantly on their mind and they're thinking about it and it's becoming internalized in their in their, you know, their inner voice, that could become dangerous. Um, and that could lead to be dangerous behaviors, right? That could lead to, to suicidal behaviors. Now, I just want to take self-harm though out of that picture for just a second, because not everyone who's self-harming is suicidal. That's fascinating. Tell us more about that. The thing that people don't understand about self-harm is that for many people, it is a form of coping. Is it, an ex is it an extremely dangerous coping mechanism? Absolutely. Could it potentially put you at harm for dying? Yes, it could. Um, but self-harm injuries are not always indicative of wanting to die by suicide or, or, having, a, a, a su or having suicidal behavior. Um, cool. So let me see if I understand what you're saying. Are you saying that that is a coping mechanism. They're in pain. They found a way to kind of deal with their numb, their pain right. or make themselves feel their selves. And that helps them feel exactly. right. Um, so similar to drugs, somebody who's using drugs to numb their pain doesn't necessarily want to die. Right. But there are people who die of drug overdoses or from alcohol all the time, all yeah. the time. Right? right. We don't consider those suicide deaths. Because but wouldn't you say that it's on the path towards that? Absolutely. That oh, no, for sure. And they could come in conjunction, but not always. I think it's important okay. to make a distinction that they can be separated, that there are people who engage in self-harming behaviors. And by the way, self-harming behaviors could also be starving yourself. Sure. It could also be um, abusing your body through use of alcohol or drugs, right? That is a form of self-harm. I yes. think when we think of self-harm, we usually think of cutting. Right. right. Like that where people normally go and cutting is dangerous. I don't want to make it sound like it's not self harming your body in a way in that way is extremely dangerous. Um, and I have seen people end up in the hospital for, for self harm injuries. And it's like, but I wasn't trying to kill myself. I was just trying to like feel something different, you know, but they can go in conjunction to one with one another, right? Like risk factors for suicide includes things like alcohol and drug use or abuse, self-harm, um, also engaging in reckless or dangerous behaviors that are more likely to put you, right, like driving 100 miles an hour without a seatbelt on, or like engaging in, in unsafe practices online with strangers, like, you know, talking to strangers online and then making plans to meet up with them. You wouldn't inherently think like, oh, this is someone who is suicidal, but suicidal doesn't only mean I want my life to end right now, and so I'm going to find a way to end it. Sometimes it means I don't care what happens to me because I'm so in pain that if this happens and the outcome is that I don't make it, I will be okay with it. So like even suicidality exists on a spectrum. And like, I know for me personally, when I fell into this role and I say fell into this role because I really wasn't looking for it. Um, I had a very one-track-minded, one-dimensional understanding of people who experience suicidal behavior ideation because, like, how could I not? I was 23 or 24 years old. Like, I didn't, I didn't know these things. And it's, it's a lot more nuanced and complicated than we think it is because people are nuanced and complicated. 
You know, like when we say a person is struggling with anxiety, well, that could mean a lot of different things, right? Like I know when I was at the height of the worst episode of depression I had ever experienced, people around me who didn't know me well could not tell because I was a very functional person, right? We think depressed is can't get out of bed, can't shower, can't eat, can't go to work, can't raise their kids. I was doing all of those things, right? A person with anxiety can still get up in the morning and take the bus. They might be internally losing their mind about being, you know, oh my God, what if the bus crashes? What if this happens? But on the outside, they look, they look like everybody else. So there is a, there is a more nuanced approach that we could be taking to understanding people because we're a lot more complicated than we like, we just filter it down to one thing, but people are complicated, you know? Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about cutting. You know, I hear that it is something that it's done in groups. Yes. Um, yes. It's a learned behavior. Yes. It sounds like, I mean, I don't know. And I'm curious about that. Is that something that somebody has to teach you? Is that something that um, you're learning from a friend or from a, you know, something that you saw online? Tell me more about cutting. It's a little bit of both. So, so here's the thing. I'm going to kind of like back into this a little bit with a, with like a little bit of a neuroscience lesson. And I'm no, by no means a neuroscientist and neurochemistry is very complicated. I'm not trying to claim to be an expert in this, but what I do know, especially, especially with young people, um, you know, a teenage brain or an adolescent brain is very different from an adult brain. So say, you know, the most often that I see cutting and self-harm happening, especially in groups and especially as a learned behavior is among teenagers. You're not, we're not seeing it as much with adults. There is a biochemical difference for that, for why that, why we're seeing that. It's not to say that adults are not engaging in self-harm because they are, but it's different. Um, basically from the start of adolescence around puberty, so between 10 and 13 years old until the end of the cycle of brain development at age 30, um, young people are, are operating with a brain that for lack of a better word is not fully functional, not because there's something wrong with them, but because it's built, their brain is being built, not fully Uh, developed. It's not fully developed. And so, you know, the prefrontal cortex up here, which is responsible for so much of our ability to regulate emotion, um, take perspective, have empathy for ourselves and others, have a sense of morality, um, the, 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 the idea of the gut feeling or, or intuition really stems for the prefrontal cortex. That part of the brain is not fully developed before age 30. And so what's happening for teenagers, especially, is that they are going through massive periods of, up, of upheaval, right? Like, I'm not talking about someone who's gone through extreme trauma, though there are those cases. Just take your average teenager, they're going to new schools, their bodies are changing, they're hitting puberty, uh, they're, you know, their their voices are changing, they're getting taller, they're getting hair in places they didn't have hair before, new friendships, new opportunities, new, new, a lot of new, and also a brain that isn't necessarily like able to keep up with all that newness. It's a lot for the brain to take on. It's also a very stressful time in a person's life. You're learning who you're who you are, you're kind of in a way, disconnecting from your parents so you can learn how to be your own person, but you're not fully your own person yet because you're still dependent on them for many things. There's a lot going on there. And so it's hard to be, it's hard to be a regulated teenager just being a normal teenager, right? Yeah. But then you add in things like trauma, neglect, abuse, bullying, um, 
challenges at home, even the normal, so to speak, everyday challenges of being a teenager, what's happening I'm seeing is that it was always hard to be a teenager. Always. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm 32 years old. I don't miss being 16. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? I'm happy. I'm not in that part of my life anymore. And I know that, um, it was hard then. And there was definitely this issue 15 years ago. I think what's happening now though, is what's making self-harm more accessible and what's making it more of like a, so to speak, cool coping mechanism um, is the fact, A, that it provides a lot of relief very quickly. And B, the fact that it's so prominent in, a, in our social lexicon, the fact that it's being talked about, the fact that it's, so to speak, God forbid, being glorified, um, that you can spend five minutes on TikTok and learn what you think is everything you need to know about self-harming behaviors. And so to speak, be encouraged to engage in those self-harming behaviors because of what you're seeing online. Um, and also let's think about the fact that among peer groups, we want to be in with our friends, right? The same way that my friends were doing dangerous things in high school. And I knew if I'm not spending time with them, if I'm not hanging out with them and doing those dangerous things also, I lose my social group. And that's a huge part of being a young person is finding your people, right? And so oftentimes, even with their better jet, first of all, what better judgment? Because their prefrontal cortex is not developed enough to right. help them give them that better judgment, right? Um, a lot of it, a lot of it is stemming from that peer, that need to feel connected to peers, but also the fact that like it's much more prominent in the way it's just become almost like a buzzword. And I think that we've kind of done ourselves a disservice by normalizing it so much because it's not normal. Right. The fact that so many young people are engaging in self-harming behavior is not a normal thing. True. So what, you know, so what can parents do? What can parents do to help their child, their children, or their teens, or their young young tweens? Um, how can they help them avoid cutting or coming into that with their friends? What can parents do to help support their child to kind of stay away from that or to avoid it or to? Or to, to help them. Or to feel safe coming to their parents if they've already tried it and be able to say, this is happening and I need help, right? Because you have to consider that sometimes teens will not come to their parents until after the fact. Sure. I think the first thing is to create a safe, non-judgmental environment in which this can be talked about without it being like a blaming or attacking thing, right? So if a parent is going to approach this topic with their child, with their 12, 15, 18-year-old, to make it a safe space where it's like, we're, we're talking to you about this, not because God forbid, we're trying to get your friends in trouble or because we are mad at you. Teenagers are constantly afraid that their parents are mad at them. I think that's the thing I hear most often from teenagers who come to me for help. And they're like, I'm scared to tell my parents because I'm scared they're going to be mad at me. Wow. Most parents I that I've spoken to, the first feeling that they feel when a child confides in them that they're self-harming is being mad at themselves, not at their child. But for some reason, their children don't know that. Yeah. Um, so just maybe perhaps it's that that what the children or the teen is is feeling is that they're mad at them is truly their what they're feeling is actually the parents being mad at themselves. And right. it's just manifesting in that way because that's what it looks like. But right. truly, they're upset with themselves. So they're kind of withdrawing or, you know, right. Kind exactly. Of, disconnecting, you know, like, disconnecting maybe getting a little bit right. Getting a little bit 
loud in the conversation or like being right. very abrupt or upfront. So I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is children need to, you know, parents are a child's first teacher. As children, we're learning everything about the world through our parents' eyes, through their five senses and through their reactions to things. Teenagers are in desperate need of healthy ways to regulate and cope with the normal and abnormal stresses of being human. And they're gonna learn that from their parents, hopefully. And even if they haven't learned it from their parents, it's not too late to start learning it from them when they're 12 or 15 or 18 or 25, right? Um, helping, working with your child either together. I actually think it's a, a beautiful and very healthy thing when parents and children learn how to co-regulate, right? Like my daughter's three and a half. The amount of times that I have sat with her on the floor after a tantrum and just breathe with her for 30 seconds before we go to the next thing she tells me now when I'm frustrated, I like last night, she was giving me a really hard time at bedtime. And she goes, mommy, are you frustrated? I go, yes, I am. She's like, should we take some deep breaths? And I was like, mm -hmm. you're three years old. How are you reminding me of what I'm supposed to be teaching you? But I think we can't necessarily expect our children not to fall into, into patterns of unhealthy coping mechanisms if they don't have an alternative. Right. So teaching them that, the, that an alternative, no matter how hard of an effort it is to make the alternative happen, that the alternative is better than this. Right. If a child does not have a way to self-regulate to, you know, because our nervous systems are very complex, but they also can be helped with very simple techniques, breathing, hug, you know, receiving physical touch. Um receiving of empathy, um, finding what works for the child, right? Like for me, I know that when I was a young person and I would get very overwhelmed or dysregulated and like very anxious, the thing that would work for me is I would go outside to my backyard. I would put on really loud music and I would just dance for 15 minutes. And if I was having a really, you know, head to head conversation with my mom, I'd be like, you know what? I know myself well enough that I have to go outside right now. And just, you know, giving that space to allow for like, for the, for our bodies to get back into a state of homeostasis so that we can actually deal with the problem instead of deal with like, you know, the, the noise around cloud, it, exactly, yeah. mushroom cloud of noise that's above our heads. And I think that kind of has to start with parents learning how to regulate themselves. You know what I mean? If a parent- it all begins with us. We're their teachers, but if we don't know the skills, how are we supposed to give it to them? Yeah. It's also an unfair expectation to have as a parent, like, oh, now I have to go learn, have to teach my child something that I don't know. Well, start with you. Start with start you. educating start yourself. Educating yourself and integrating these things into your own life so that you could also be a living example for your child. If you're telling your child to breathe through their through a moment of anxiety, but when you feel anxious, you're slamming cabinets and yelling they're not learning from you. They're learning from you, right? The opposite of what you're trying to get, what you're trying, you know, what you're imparting to them. Right. What would you say to a parent that would call you and say, Lee, I need help. Um, my teen who seems to be, you know, regular, well-balanced teenagers is displaying signs of, I don't know if it's depression or anxiety. She's crying a lot. She doesn't know why she's feeling sad. She's feeling sad a lot. Um, you know, a good student, doing well, socially seems to be okay, but just 
as of late, she's been having a lot of these kind of episodes. What do I need to do for this child? So it's a great question. And there's really not a one size fits all answer, right? Every time I, and I get these kinds, the, the exact question you just posed to me, I think that's the most often question I get. This came out of nowhere. Right. And, and my normal, my regular response is, A, let's normalize that teenagers are going to feel upheaval of emotion way more often than they did as children and way more often than they will, will feel as adults. Again, coming back to the, to the, coming back to brain development, right? But also part of what I will do with families is figure out what potential protective factors are already in place for this young person. What do they already have in their life that they can turn to? And what other things can we help them develop? Um, sometimes that includes going to therapy. Sometimes that includes um, having a creative or um, otherwise emotionally stimulating outlet outside of just doing school and homework and all the extracurricular activities, right? Um, sometimes that looks like um, prescription medication for, that works for some people, not all. And also, I always bring it back to the parents of the way that you speak to this child the way you relate to their depression or their sadness or their anxiety is going to make a big difference in the way that the child relates to it. Meaning it's really hard to have these big emotional upheavals. Let's also not over, like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't take them seriously because of course we should, but I feel like a lot of times parents immediately go into a panic of like, oh my God, something's really wrong with my child. And it's like, well, emotional upheavals in life are normal. What makes it worse is if we try to make it go away or if we just try to give quick fixes to this. Like, let's figure out what kind of steps we're gonna take so that they're able to work with their emotional upheaval, that they're able to have a healthy crying it out and then not be taken hostage by having, you know, a lot of people are so scared of crying. Young people are scared of, they say to me all the time, they're like, when I cry, I feel like I'm debilitated for days afterwards. And I'm like, well, is it because you're very resistant to crying? And they're like, yeah, I am. I don't want it. I don't like it. Helping them to learn how to be comfortable in the discomfort of unpleasant emotions. Um, not that that's going to make it go away and not that that should be the only thing. But a lot of what we can do for young people as parents happens in the home with the way we respond to what's, what they're going through, right? Right. Without making it a big deal, without you know over dramatizing it, right? Um, Taking it seriously, but not putting a magnifying glass on it. On it, right? And then constantly checking in. How are you feeling? Are you feeling like right now? Constantly yeah, are checking you, in, yeah. like you know, constantly checking in on them could be very um, triggering for them. Um, it's interesting because what I'm noticing, you know, I've been going to taking children to therapy now for over 20 years. Uh, no, 15 years, I would say. Um, and it's really shifted. What I'm noticing now is this idea that the therapists really want to work with the parent, especially with younger children yeah. and even, yeah. you know, you know, even teens, even tweens, and even with the teens, they want the parents to be involved with the idea that really a lot can happen the most at home and the most um, effective form of therapy is really between the, the relationship between the parent and the child. 
I so, absolutely agree with that. I really so, agree and I, I'm just curious because it's something that I'm noticing is whereas years ago, it was more like the child and the therapist kind of yeah. child-centered. Now it's more parent-centered and we're seeing um, this shift also beginning to happen in schools, whereas we're trying to kind of guide the teachers and kind of help them become that quote therapists because education today is not just about giving information. You know, we can right. go online and get all the information we need. Right now, we need to um, help our children and our students learn how to deal with uncomfortable situations and how to self-regulate and how to deal with challenges. Right. So, so I'm curious what your what your thoughts on this parent this parent led or adult led therapy versus just the child going in. What What are your thoughts on that? I actually think it's a really beautiful thing because. You know, the, I don't know the exact quote, but the Rebbe spoke about how if you want to change the world, you start with yourself and then your home and then your neighborhood and then your community and you branch out and you branch out and you branch out, right? Until you change the whole world. But it has to start right here if it's going to be effective. And the place where a child spends the most time in their early years is at home with their parents. This is the core relationship that sh that paves the way for the rest of our lives. That is like a very, to me personally, is a very humbling and daunting thing. As a, as a mother of a young child, I'm like, whoa, what happens here in this home, in my relationship with her, in my husband's relationship with her, in our relationship with each other, and the things she's seeing about our relationship are going to pave the way for the way that she sees the world because she's learning through our eyes. And so, you know, Obviously, every person is a separate is a separate identity, but we also exist as a unit in a family. And I think that yes, we should be making therapy focused on the child's ability to regulate, the child's ability to learn skills, their ability to take on what's needed for their challenges. And it's a lot more helpful, I find, and healing overall if the parents are simultaneously doing either their own work or learning how to work with the child's needs. Um, because you could learn all the skills you want in therapy as a 12 or 15 year old. But if you go home to a house where the things that you're learning in therapy are not easily implemented, you're not going to implement them. You what know? does it look like for a parent to simultaneously do their own work? I think it looks different for every, every family, every person. I know for me, the way that like I, I can really only speak for myself. For me, the work happens in the off hours where I'm not like on as a mom, you know? So like, and this is not realistic for everybody. It's also not realistic for me all the time, but like I have a mindfulness practice. I meditate for three to 10 minutes most days, not every day. Um, I make sure to go for a walk for 10 minutes at some point in the day. Um, I ask for help when I need it. You know, I, I remove the guilt off of uh, takeout or frozen dinners when I need that, that, that backspace. For a parent to, to simultaneously be working on themselves with a child also means for the parent to let go of some of that feeling of like, I have to be a perfect person for my child. No, you're not perfect. And they need to learn from you that life is not perfect, right? Like show your emotions, show them that, that you also have sad days. You know, I, I will, I, there have been times where I'll, you know, something really emotional happened and I'll cry. And my daughter will ask me like, mommy, you're crying. I'm like, yeah, I'm sad. 
And it's okay to feel sad, right? Like feeling sad is, is part of being human. Um, but I think for every family, for every parent, it's so different, right? Like maybe it's making sure you have your support group of your friends that you can turn to outside of just your home unit, right? Like having a, a robust and healthy social life, um, having something outside of just the caregiving and the parenting that allows you to fortify yourself and kind of fill your own cup. Because if your cup is empty as a, as a mother or a father, it's going to be a lot harder to give to your children, right? I'm in therapy regularly. I have done a lot of my own homework. I, you know, I'm con it, but it looks different for every person. Right. And so I if you're, so going back to the original question, like if you have a child that's calling you and saying, or if their child's living at home or living away where they're crying a lot and they're sad, what you could be doing simultaneously for yourself is educate yourself. Yeah. Read up on it, study it, go to therapy yourself, speak to professionals, get the information that you may be missing so that you could help your child. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm taking away from that initial um, question. Let's go to for a second to anxiety. You know, it's really it's really challenging because what we're what we're no, learning now is is that the best way to help somebody grow with their anxiety is to not avoid the situation, but rather kind of um, dig into it. Not like all in, but like a little bit exposure therapy of stop trying to avoid that which you're afraid of because it becomes bigger. But you know, go into that. And and a lot of parents may notice that their younger children are you know scared, so they'll constantly move away those things that their child's afraid of. Whereas it's more effective actually to allow your child to have those kind of quote exposure therapy. Um, yeah. My question about that is giving them as a service because we're putting the stumbling block in their way in a, in a different way by trying to take the, the pain away from them. Right. Exactly. So my question is, is can you talk to that a little bit? Tell us a little bit more about this idea, not only for children, but for yourself. If you're somebody that has your own things that you are anxious about, that you worry about in a real way, even this just small example of what's going on right now in New York City, where you see there's smoke and smog and it looks really scary and it's overwhelming and parents or teachers, they're sitting there with their kids, right? You're maybe feeling like freaked out by it. And this is something that happens in our life constantly. Yeah. How do we go about that? And I, I guess I just asked two questions in one, but like, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of not avoiding that, which we're afraid of. And a little bit about our own stuff that we can do to help us when we are dealing with something that we're scared of. Right. Well, I think that the, the, you know, there's a quote that the, the things that you want in life are on the other side of your fear. Right. Yeah. And, and very often, well, here's the thing. Anxiety is very much what if based, right? What if this happens? What if this happens? What are we going to do if ABC, you know, we're usually, when we're in an anxiety mindset, we're usually not present to the moment so much as we are thinking about what might be coming so that we could try to control and prevent it. And the problem is, is that as human beings, we are not able to really control anything besides for, I mean, obviously there are things that are within our control, but so much of the things that we feel anxious about as a society are not things that we can control, right? Um, right. You know whose approach I love on this, which is going to sound really funny, but Mr. Rogers, Okay, tell us more. Rogers was very popular at a time where it was not normal to get down on eye level with a child or a tween or a teenager and say, hey, this is what's happening right now. I know it's really scary, but let's address it so that it feels a little bit less scary. You know, he had episodes on, like, it's so funny, but I 
Like I grew up watching Mr. Rogers as a kid, you know, he was still on in the nineties, but like, even now I'll put it on for my daughter. And sometimes I sit with her and I will tear up during these episodes. Cause like, I'm like, wow, what would happen if we would talk to our children this way about the things that we're afraid of? We would be in a different society. It's not to say that the pain, the challenging moments are going to go away. They're not. That's, that's being human. Being human means you're going to go through upheavals and challenges and some are going to be more extreme than others. But I think mitigating our own anxieties and not passing on those anxieties to our children or you know, simultaneously kind of co-regulating what we're feeling with what our children are feeling is A, learning how to identify when you feel anxiety in your own body, right? Like, where am I feeling it? How am I feeling it? Getting out of your own, getting out of just being in your head and dropping down into your body and saying like, I know for me, I notice my anxiety in my chest and in my stomach. So just taking one breath. I'm not saying get on the floor and do two hours of yoga right now. Just take a deep breath. Be aware of your breath in your body and then be able to look at your child and say, hey, this is what's going on right now. This is really scary. How do you feel about this? What do you need to know? What are you worried about? Let them verbalize, let them express without saying like, oh, no, no, it's okay. Don't think about it. Let's think about something else. Let's do something else. Let's, let's try to ignore the fear. If you're going to ignore it, it's just going to get louder and louder until you pay attention to it, right? I'm not, you know, I think there's also, in terms of the first part of the question in, in how do we not, you know, take the, the kind of move them away from their, from their anxiety triggers the thing is, is that when you're going to approach anxiety with a young person or even with yourself, do it with kindness, do it with empathy, not from a place of like, okay, we're going to face this head on now. I'm going to throw you into the pool, even though you don't know how to swim and you're going to figure it out and be fine. You don't know that, <laughs> right? Right. But let's, let's have some skills here. Even if it's just, let's breathe together. Let's run our hands under some cold water. Let's go for a walk. Let's talk about it. Let's just, you know, feel how we feel um, and then face it. And again, not from a place of putting pressure on them. Like I'm not giving you a choice. You're going to go do this thing today because this is how you're going to get over your fear. But more like, I recognize that you're anxious about this. Can you tell me more about why you're feeling anxious about it? And what do you think that we could do? Or how could I support you to do the thing that you're afraid of, even though it's really overwhelming for you? Right, because our whole, I think one of the, the, the greatest sources of nafas that we could have as parents is watching our children thrive. But that means teaching them to work with and live with adversity because adversity is part of being human. Yeah. And, and we're doing them a disservice by trying to take the adversity away from them because then when they are faced with something overwhelming, they're like, wait a second, this feels so much bigger than it should feel. Why does this feel too big for me? Well, if you haven't faced the small things, the medium things are going to feel ginormous. True point. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to a different podcast. I forget what it's called on mental health. And they were talking about Shaduchim and how um, if if you were looking for a Shaduch for your child, would you go to, um, you know, would you want some money for your child? Like, who would you, this is the question that was raised. Would you want your grandchildren raised by somebody who grew up in a home where 
everything was handed on a, on a silver platter to them. They didn't have to work too hard. Their parents had money. They got into all the best schools, best seminaries, best camps. They didn't really have any kind of real challenges or struggles. They then, you know, got, you know, dated the first, married the first person they dated and their right. parents gave them a down payment for their, for their house to live in the, you know, wherever it is that they chose to. Is that the person that you want to raise your grandchildren? It was such a great question. It really got me thinking yeah. because, you know, when we look for um, Shaduchim for our children or we're looking out for somebody who is the right fit, we are looking for that perfect quote, even though that doesn't exist because we know there's no such thing, person. But the truth is, is that would we want someone to raise our grandchildren who had that kind of life? How are they going to deal with what life brings you? Because life deals you right. things, stuff and, and constantly. Like, and it's even just the small things, a flat tire, overdrafting your bank account. Your kids don't wake up on time. You're late for a meeting. You forgot to send your kids lunch in. These are all things that have happened to me in the last six months, right? Like, <laughs> these are normal. That's right. Experiences. Like, it's, I think that we are so afraid as parents for our children. We want them to have the best life possible. And so we think that taking the oppositions away from them is what's going to give them that. And actually, it's not. But because quite the opposite. We're setting up false expectations, you know, and like, just to keep this shidduchim string going for one second, if I may, I think it's funny what you said about we're looking for a perfect partner, but anyone who's been married for more than six months knows that there's no such thing and that you marry a very human human because you're a human human, right? And if you are expecting yourself to be human, then so will your spouse, right? And like being human is messy and we go through a variety of challenges it's not about being married to a perfect person it's about learning separately and together how to how to face those challenges right and that's also why going back to this idea of why it's so important for parents to be able to have tools themselves you know as individuals as a mother and a father but also as a couple we're gonna go through hard things and we need to have that kind of that fortified strength so that when the challenges come we're able to face them. And it's not to say that, you know, there have been challenges in my life where I'm like, oh my God, am I ever going to see the other side of this? But also, you know, the, the way I like to, to give the example of like what these skills could be, it's like wearing a helmet when you go for a bike ride. You don't expect that the helmet's going to stop you from falling off the bike. And if that's your expectation to begin with, just don't get on the bike, Right. Life is like riding a bicycle. You're going to get dealt challenges. You're going to fall off. If you're wearing a helmet, hopefully the damage is not going to be as bad, right? But we don't expect that a helmet and elbow and knee pads are going to stop us from falling off the bike. Like that's just not, that's not a realistic way to, to, to live. And if, in fact, that does us a much greater disservice because then when we fall off the bike, it's like, wait, why am I dealing with these challenges when I have all of these skills? Right. You know, they yeah. go hand. Let's go back for a minute to what we spoke about earlier about cutting and suicide ideation. What what can a parent do at that time if you find out that your child, that your teenager is cutting or self-harming of some sort? What is something actually that you can do? Okay. First thing is the same thing I said before. Empathetic, compassionate, non-judgmental approach. So no love. screaming, what's wrong with you? Why are you hurting yourself? That's not going to work, you're saying. <laughs> shut down so fast because they're perceiving that as they're mad at me they hate me 
I'm a bad person. I did something wrong. That's not usually 99.9% of the time. That is not a parent's intention. Doesn't matter if that's not your intention. That is how your child is perceiving it, right? Especially because they're coming to this conversation with so much anxiety, especially if a parent finds out not from their child, right? If it's coming from the school, if it's coming from a peer, if they found out because of whatever, the child didn't approach them and say, hey, this is happening. I'm going through this. They're finding out in their own way, right? So empathetic, non-judgmental, compassionate approach. Also with like the loving kindness of discipline, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that this is an, that this is, that you are in so much pain that this is, you feel that you feel this is the, 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 the mechanism you need to take. Also let's work together now on other approaches that might be, it might be necessary in those cases. And I often recommend it to involve a mental health professional in that process. Um, because not always are parents aware of like the, so to speak, staircase of coping mechanisms and the varying degrees that they can take with their children. And it could be very helpful for a professional to work through that with them. Um, but I think keeping that open line of, of healthy, safe, warm, loving, firm communication with a young person. Um, and also then taking away the means of self-harm, right? Don't leave it up to your child to be like, oh, now I had this conversation with my parents and they know that I know that they love me. Sometimes their urge or their need to self-regulate is going to be greater than the desire not to harm themselves. So taking away whatever the means are um, of self-harm, introducing other coping mechanisms. You know, I know a therapist who recommends people who are self-harming to wear rubber bands on their hands and to snap rubber bands. Not that that's less painful, but it's less dangerous, right? right? And and you, one would think like, isn't the point to get away from self-harm altogether? Like, why are we recommending that? Well, if that's the coping mechanism that they're familiar with, you want to slowly and habitually help them move away from it. And it's only going to happen in degrees. If they go cold turkey without having other healthy ingrained mechanisms first, they're going to run right back to that. Um, but I can't stress enough how important it is if a parent is, is made aware that their child is self-harming or is having thoughts of suicide or is engaging in suicidal behavior. The more empathy and love you bring to this conversation, the better off you will be in your relationship with your child because this is a long-term relationship, Right and also engaging help of others. I always tell people, we are not meant to, we're not an island onto ourselves. We are not meant to do things alone. Um, A network of safety is crucial, not only for the child, but also for the parents. Do you know, most parents, when they call me, one of my first questions to them is, how are you? Right? Like, how are you? How are you? How are you? And they're like, frankly, I haven't had time to think about myself in six weeks. (laughs) Ask me the last time I brushed. I don't remember the last time I brushed my teeth normally. Like I'm living on autopilot, right? Like just, so they need that support too. So um, especially for young people, I always recommend to therapist, to, to parents that you find a therapist that has extensive knowledge in working with adolescents. Because adolescent problems and adult problems are not the same thing. 
And marriage and family therapists cannot necessarily do the work of working with teenagers. Yeah, working with teenagers, in my opinion, is requires a lot of, I think it's a very specific kind of person that can do it. Absolutely. They need a lot of empathy, a lot of connection, a lot of ability to kind of look at them almost as an equal, even though, because so many adults look at teenagers as like somebody looking down at the teenagers and they really need somebody to look at them eye to eye that they feel, they feel really an equal, almost just like in, like in the same level, the same, and, you know. And teenagers equal. have a very strong meter for reading people. So if they walk oh, yeah. into a therapist and the therapist in the first five minutes, they feel degraded in any way by the therapist, they will shut down and never open up to that person again, ever. Absolutely. Doesn't matter if they're going to that person for four years, they will never tell them the truth. That's very true. Okay, so I want to finish up with one final question that I ask all of my guests. What is something that you thought you knew really well or you were definitely sure about with regard to the topic of anxiety, suicide, suicide prevention, um, self-harm, any of these topics that we spoke about today. But after you know years of your own life experiences and years working with teens and within this community or any community that you've changed your opinion on. Mm, ooh, that's a heavy one. <laughs> no, um, I think that the thing that I that I thought I knew for certain going into this, um, which I have learned and been schooled in over and over and over again over the last seven years, is that you can do everything right or right on the behalf of the person. You cannot walk the walk for them and you cannot go on their healing journey for them. When I started, I had this very almost naive approach to like, if we just follow these steps and we everything. do things and we check off these boxes and we da, 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 they will be okay. And I can go to sleep at night knowing that they're safe. Not always is that true. And from my personal life, from my professional life, I've seen people are very complicated and healing is a very messy process and it's not linear and expecting anyone to have a linear approach to, to healing is not fair. Right. And so I've become much more less of like, we have to do these things because these are the things that work. Now my approach is very much just getting eye to eye, human to human with each individual and figuring out like, how can I help you for right now? Because maybe right now is the only time I'm ever going to have with you. Right. This, do you know how many families call me that I speak to them once for three, four hours and then they never call me again. And I never know the end of the story. Yeah. I, I can relate to know, that. Never learn the end of the story. So my job in those three hours that I have with them or 20 minutes that I have with them is to just drop in and be human with them and give them whatever chizuk, love, support, referrals that I can provide and know that my job is not to take the healing, healing walk for them. They have to do that themselves. Um, and that it's not my job to heal on their behalf. You know, I that's, love that. That's been the biggest lesson for me. And it's very humbling because I keep learning it. <laughs> and it's a really true point. Yeah. It's a very powerful thing to keep in mind as a parent too. You can educate yourself. You can do all the things that you yeah. need to do for your child. Be empathetic and kind and get eye to eye to them. Really not be judgmental and be curious. And your child can still struggle. And there's yeah. almost a point where you have to, like you said, you need to get your own support, your own help because- you have to learn how to be able to breathe and live with that discomfort of knowing that your child is not necessarily safe. Yes. And it's, and I'm here to say it as a parent, you can do it. It's right. really hard. But you can do it. 
it, it's doable. It just, it's really, really, really hard. Yes. And I, and if I could add to that, I think that the disservice that a lot of parents do for themselves without realizing is they don't let go. They keep holding on to that. I can just do one more thing. I can just try one more thing. We can go to one more doctor. We can try one more treatment. We can do this. We could sometimes letting go is the best thing you can do for them and for you. Because in that letting go, you give them the space to realize that they're on their own journey. They're on their own path and they have to put in the work in the way that's going to be effective for them. And sometimes that doesn't happen, but taking that step backwards almost gives them in a way that permission, you know, to be like, okay, Montar, not necessarily like holding my hand anymore. I'm doing it on my, they're right there behind me, waving and supporting me. They're not, they're not necessarily holding my hand and that's okay. Yeah. I've, I've spoken about this before, this idea of a, of a roller coaster, you know, like, so like many years I've been on the roller coaster with my kid. And then I said, I don't want to be on the roller coaster anymore. I don't even like roller coasters. So I went off the roller coasters <laughs> and yeah. I would sit on the bench and watch the roller coaster and kind of cheer them on. And then at some points I even stepped out of the amusement park altogether. I know they're on a roller coaster and they know that I'm here and I'm, and I'm a, a comforting, supportive voice, but that separation, we're so afraid of it. We think it's not good parenting. We think that it's, it's, it's unkind. And the truth is, is like you said, you need to be able to take care of yourself, number one, but also allow your child to realize they, hey, they trust me. They think I could do this. They think I could do this roller coaster myself, get off of it and step right out of the park when I'm ready. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And that individuation and the the gift that we give our children of letting themselves be their own person, no matter what kind of challenges they're going to go. I think that's actually the greatest gift that we can give them as parents is showing them that we, we trust them in that way and that we're not abandoning them, right? We're, we're still going to be here for you. And you also now have to take this walk by yourself and get into this roller coaster and strap yourself in and see what happens. It's a very big gift. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Lee, for this conversation today and for your time. I think a lot of people are going to find it to be helpful. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, Razel. Thanks for having me on. I'm really grateful. How can people reach you if they are looking to get in touch with you? Okay. So they can visit our website, www.thelongshortroad.com. They can also email me to lee at thelongshortroad.com. All right. And well, well on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, we'll include that in our show notes as well. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. I hope you learned a thing or two and found it to be insightful. If you would like to get a hold of Lee, you can do so by her email through her website. It's all in the show notes as well. Again, if you could take a moment and leave a review or a comment we would be so grateful. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And I'm wishing you a wonderful day.